Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles right now and turn in them in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter number 27. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn it in the back part to page 62, and you would be at Matthew chapter 27. You know, it was a number of years ago that Time magazine polled a group of people, and they asked them to rank famous events in order of importance. You know what came out to be the number one famous event? Columbus's discovery of America. Tied at number 14 in the list was a three-way tie of the discovery of the X-ray, the first flight by the Wright brothers, and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So at number 14, you had a tie with Kitty Hawk and, and Calvary. But you know what's most fascinating to me about that list? is the significant, famous event that doesn't appear anywhere in the list. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know, the resurrection is, is like that for many people. Uh, they might be asked in a survey, it would never come to their mind to list that. Maybe they give very little thought to the resurrection. Maybe one time a year, at Easter, they think about the resurrection. And maybe you have grown up, I don't know your background, around the Easter time and the Easter celebration. And, and the truth is that you maybe have had a casual attitude towards Easter. It's great for other people to get excited. It's, it's a good holiday story, but it's never had any personal impact in your life. It's never been a, a key to your own personal spiritual future. Because after all, I mean, as many would say, all religions are moral, and one is as good as another, and all roads lead to heaven. I don't know if any of that is similar to your thinking and your background, but, but if it is, I want to suggest maybe today is time for a change of perspective about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we talk about the resurrection of Christ today, it's going to be of great profit for all of us no matter where we are. For some of us, it will be a matter of review. For some of us, it is going to be a fresh relishing of the truth of the resurrection. Now, I've entitled the message today, The Resurrection, Reasonable or Not. And as we begin to answer that question, we want to review, start off by reviewing the historical record. And we see that record laid out for us in Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 62. And I want to read a little portion of this today, and we're going to read through a number of verses in chapter 28. So I want you to just follow along in your Bible as I read the historical record that is laid out for us. So in chapter 27, verse 62, remember Jesus has been crucified, and he died, and he has been buried. Verse 62. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with the governor Pilate and said, Sir, 
We remember that when he, Jesus, was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and they made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Chapter 28, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and and great joy, and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go, and take my word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled the elders together, they consulted together, and they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Now, today as we answer the question, the resurrection, reasonable or not, we're going to look at two things. The first thing we're going to look at is the reasonableness of the resurrection. And then we're going to take a few minutes to look at the ramifications of the resurrection. So that's our plan. Let's begin by looking at the reasonableness of the resurrection. And what I want to do for a few moments is survey through some of the alternatives to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and that the tomb was empty. I want to just survey through some of the other explanations that have been put forward to explain an empty tomb. 
And here's the first one. The first alternative would say that Jesus was really not dead. He was somewhat unconscious, uh, not really together, but when he was put into the, the coolness of the tomb, he revived. He had just swooned on the cross, and later he revived in the tomb. Now, that alternative is one that a number of articles over the years and books have supported, that in the coolness, after everything that he went through, he just revived. Well, one thing I have to say I think is very clear when you look at the historical record, and that is that Jesus died, that Jesus was dead. If you just go back and look at the events, it's very clear. You know, it all began with him after he was arrested and he was tried when he was scourged. You know, scourging was when you would take this heavy whip and on the end of the whip you would tie pieces of bone or pieces of metal. And then as someone was being struck with that, it would lacerate their skin. It would tear at their veins. They would bleed profusely, a lot of blood loss, and the muscles of their back would even be laid bare. That's how it began for Jesus. And then he went from being scourged to being crucified. You know, that was the capital punishment of the day. That was him undergoing lethal injection or the electric chair here in our culture. And what would happen in a crucifixion, and they were very, very good at this, the Romans had perfected it, is that when someone was being crucified, it was designed to make you suffer for a long time. You know, lethal injection, it's over with fast. Crucifixion was different from that. But what happened with those who were being crucified is that they would begin not to be able to bleed or to breathe, rather, by the blood that was inside of their chest cavity, so they would often lift themselves up to catch a breath, and then they would have to drop back down. And so crucifixion could go on multiple, multiple hours, even more than a day. And so what they would do in that time is that when they wanted the crucifixion to be over, the soldiers would come up and they would break both of your legs. Then you no longer had the ability to push up and get a breath. And that's exactly what happened at the crucifixion. The soldiers showed up and they looked at Jesus and they realized that he was dead and they did not break his legs. The two insurrectionists, the two terrorists who were on either side of him, both had their two legs broken by the soldiers so that they would go ahead and die. And yet they still, just to prove that Jesus was dead, they took a spear and they thrust it into the side of Jesus. And the fluids that came out very clearly indicated that he had died. The one thing that's very clear is that Jesus died. We learn from the Gospel of Mark that Pilate wondered whether he had died yet, so he called the centurion who was in charge of the execution. And by the way, you know that he was probably their most experienced executor because this was the most highly political execution that they'd ever done. And so he comes and Pilate says, is he dead yet? And this centurion who had no doubt witnessed hundreds of crucifixions confirmed, yes, Jesus is dead. I'm always a little amused at this particular theory that, you know, he just sort of went a little unconscious, he swooned, and then in the cool 
of the tomb, he revived. You know, like it was real hot out there, and now he he sort of came back because it was nice and cool and fresh. Listen, it wasn't cool at the time he was crucified. It was downright cold. On the night that he was arrested, it was so frigidly cold that those standing around had to stand near a fire just to be able to endure the cold of the night. And not only that, but when Jesus died, they did what was customary, is that they wrapped him fully in a linen shroud. And what they would do when they would do that is they would use spices, 70 to 100 pounds of spices were wrapped all around him tightly. And even if he was still alive, even if he could breathe that strong odor of the alloy, aloes rather, and the myrrh, probably would have gagged him right there. But Jesus was dead. And we learn from chapter 27 in verses 62 to 66 that the Jewish leaders were totally convinced he was dead. Now, if you're going to concede death, what other alternatives do we have to an empty tomb and a resurrection of Jesus? And a second common alternative that is given is that it was the wrong tomb. Everybody went to the wrong tomb. They just assumed it was the right tomb, but it it wasn't the right tomb. It was the wrong tomb. And yet that doesn't fit with the facts either. We know that the guard, the Roman guard that Pilate gave to them was led to the very tomb by the chief priests and the Pharisees. We learn from Matthew chapter 27 and Mark chapter 15 that Mary Magdalene and Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, watched where he was buried. They knew the exact tomb that he was in. And in John chapter 20, when Peter and John learn about the resurrection of Jesus, they sprinted right for the tomb and they sprinted right to the very place because they knew Everybody knew where the tomb was that Jesus had been buried in. By the way, if it was a wrong tomb situation, the easiest way to squash these rumors that he had been resurrected would be for the Jewish authorities to lead everybody to the right tomb and say, well, this was the real tomb. Everybody was at the missing tomb. But they didn't do that. Because it wasn't the wrong tomb, it was the right tomb. Now, one other alternative that has commonly been given over the years, other explanations for the resurrection is, okay, it was the the right tomb, okay, he died, but his body was removed by a third party. It wasn't himself doing it, it was somebody else. Well, who would somebody else be? Well, one group could be the Jewish authorities, but why would they do it? Remember, Jesus, they even said out of their own mouth, had claimed that he was going to be resurrected. If they're going to be supporting the resurrection, they're going to be destroying their own reputation before the people. They're going to be undermining their own position. And if they were planning to steal the body, why would they go to Pilate and say, we need a Roman guard to guard the tomb? 
So it couldn't have been the Jewish authorities, and the only other interested party that it could have been would have been the disciples and the followers of Jesus. And as we saw from Matthew chapter 28, verse 15, that was the story that was put out. That was the story that was popularly spread. It was the disciples who took the body. Now let's look a little more closely at that. Look at chapter 28 and verse 11. While again they were running to tell the rest of the disciples that Jesus was raised from the dead, some of the guard came into the city of Jerusalem and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. Now why would a Roman guard go and report to the chief priests and the scribes. Well, you need to know a little background about the Roman army. The Roman army was highly, highly disciplined. If you lost your weapon, you could receive the death penalty. If you laid hands on a superior, you could receive the death penalty. If you were just even guilty of disturbing the peace as a Roman soldier, you could be executed for that. But you also would be executed if you fell asleep on the job or if you abandoned your post. And what was their story? The soldier's story. We see it in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 28. They were basically saying, well, there was this severe earthquake. And then there was this being that descended from heaven... And it rolled away the stone and it sat upon the stone and his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. And even though we're these experienced soldiers, we shook for fear of him and we became like dead men. That was their story. And they knew that there was no way their Roman commanders or the governor, Pilate, were ever going to buy that story. We were just there and this supernatural being came and rolled the stone away and it was such an awesome being, we just shook and we couldn't even move out of complete fear. That wasn't going to sell at all. So they go back into the city and they say, we need to talk to the religious leaders about this. In verses 12 and 13, they came up with a plan. They consulted together. And the religious leaders said, we're going to give you a large sum of money. And here's what you're supposed to say. This is the story. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. That's the plan. That's what you are to go with. Now, there are incredible problems with that plan. Incredible problems. Can you imagine later on the governor Pilate calling for the centurion and the centurion is explaining to him what happened? And you know, you can hear the centurion explain this to Pilate and Pilate responds back, okay, now let me just, centurion, let me get this straight. What you're telling me is that while you and your team were sleeping there guarding the tomb, that these so-called followers of Jesus, these disciples of his, 
sneaked in among you, came to the tomb, broke the seal, rolled the large rock back in its track, went in, they grabbed this heavy body, and they carried it out among you, and you never heard anything because you and your men were sleeping. Is that what you're saying? Yes, sir. That's what we're saying happened. So just to get this clear, now you are telling me that you as these seasoned soldiers allow these primitive, uneducated Galileans, most of whom were fishermen, to come in among you in this stealthy fashion without making any noises. There were no grunts or anything. There was no sound from the rock moving in the track. You're telling me they were able to get in and get out and you kept sleeping and you and your men never heard anything. Yes, sir. That's our story. So you're telling me that your men and yourself slept through this whole thing. Yes, sir. That's what happened. Well, if you slept through this whole thing, I have one final question for you. How do you know it was the disciples who stole the body? You see, there's an incredible hole in this story. And it's no doubt to me that the guards knew there was a huge hole in the story. And before they accepted this payoff from the religious leaders, notice verse 14 of chapter 28. If this should come to the governor's ears... We will win him over and keep you out of trouble. In other words, they insisted on an an assurance from the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes that when this story has a big hole in it, would go to the governor that they would intercede. They would go to bat and they would win him over and keep them out of trouble. See, those are the basic alternatives. And men and women, there, there is only one reasonable explanation Jesus died. It wasn't the wrong tomb. And it wasn't the disciples who sneaked in and stole this body, opening up a tomb and all the other things in the middle of the night. The only reasonable explanation is that Jesus was resurrected. And that's what the historical account emphasizes. In fact, we we can read the account and we find out that he appeared in his resurrected form in convincing fashion at least 10 different times to people. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, and then he appeared second to the other women, and then he appeared to the apostle Peter, and then he appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then he also appeared another time to 10 of the disciples without Thomas, who was the doubting one. And then he appeared a sixth time to all 11 of the disciples, including Thomas. And then he appeared a seventh time to seven of the disciples. And then he appeared an eighth time to 500 people. 
Then he appeared a ninth time, a pretty significant one to me. He appeared to James, which was his brother. And then he appeared a tenth time to the 11 disciples. The only reasonable explanation is that Jesus was resurrected. That's the reasonableness of the resurrection. The second thing we want to look at, though, are the ramifications of this. It has a lot of ramifications for us. And the first ramification is that Jesus was right in his claims. Obviously, he claimed that he was going to be resurrected. He was right in that claim. But he was right in his other claims that he made. For example, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said, when it comes to approaching a relationship with God the Heavenly Father, I am the way to do that. I am the truth in life. I am the spiritual life that you need. What I came to do for you, to die on the cross and to be crucified, to pay the penalty for your sins, and the resurrection that followed after that, that's the only way to establish a relationship with the Father who is in heaven. And another time in John chapter 10 and verse 9, Jesus said this, and it's all in the imagery of sheep and pastures. He said, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. And wherever they go, they will find green pastures. What's the imagery here? The imagery is coming into a relationship with God. And he says, when it comes to coming into a relationship with God, I am the gate. You have to go through the gate to get to God. And those who come in through me and who I am and what I did for you will be saved, will be rescued. And wherever they go, they'll find green pastures. What do green pastures do for sheep? They satisfy their most basic needs. And if we want to have our most basic internal needs satisfied, Jesus says you have to come through the gate. I am the gate. In John chapter 6 and verse 35, he said these words. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Let's examine that for a minute. You know, bread is the basic food that we need to function in life. And what Jesus is saying when it comes to the basic functioning in life, I am the one that you need. I am the bread of life. And the one who comes to me and establishes a relationship with me, those people will not hunger. Now, he's not saying you won't have any physical hunger anymore. He's talking in a spiritual dimension here. He says, when you come to me, you're not going to hunger anymore. You won't have those gnawing needs on the internal part of your life about what's life all about. You won't hunger anymore. And he who believes in me will never thirst. I will satisfy 
all of those desires, wondering about who God is and what's life all about, I will satisfy them. The one who believes in me, which means to trust in something, to rest in something, to count in it, says, if you believe in me, who I am and what I came to do, I died, I paid your penalty, and I rose again. When you believe and trust in that, you're not going to thirst anymore. We have a great treat today because Dr. Jeff Harwell is going to come and share a testimony with us. He's a chemical engineering professor at OU, and he's just going to share with, with us a little bit of, of his story about how he began to look through what is true and what isn't true and, and what is the key to life. And he's just going to share how God was working on his heart and mind over some time. So, Dr. Harwell, come and share with us, and let's welcome him. Thank you, Bruce. Um, I, I grew up in a Christian home and uh, going to church regularly, uh, but I also grew up always wanting to be a scientist when I grew up. I can remember telling my second grade teacher I wanted to be a scientist when I grew up. And uh, I, I read everything, um, and I kind of developed this idea from, you know, the popular things that I read, that Christianity was kind of a story that had kind of developed over the centuries, and the Bible was just kind of a collection of these stories that had uh, developed in the community of people who believed. So when I got to uh, Texas A&M at 18 years old, um, I decided, you know, I really don't have any evidence that God exists, any evidence that Christianity is true. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an atheist from now on. And I decided that I was not going to believe in God and that I was going to try to live my life consistent with the idea that there was no God. Well, this turned out to be a pretty big disappointment. <laughs> One of the first things that hit me was, you know, if, if there is no God and everything is just kind of a cosmic accident, then my goal of being a scientist is kind of empty. So I, I thought of scientists as people that contributed to the good of mankind and, and you could make this contribution to this growing body of scientific knowledge. And I realized that the second law of thermodynamics said that in the end, there's just a cold, dead universe and there's not anybody left. So really, what difference did it make if you made a contribution? Uh, every, everything was going to end in the heat death of the universe anyway. Uh, and the next thing that disturbed me was I can remember walking across a parking lot and uh, kicking some gravel and thinking, you know, those pebbles are just accidents of matter and energy. And if there's no God, people are the same way. It doesn't matter if I kick the pebbles. It doesn't really matter if I kick people. You know, there's no real basis on which you can say that Mother Teresa is a better person than Adolf Hitler. And, and when, it, when, it, when I started to think about these things, and uh, I said, you know, I, I think maybe it's worth giving this God idea another chance. <laughs> so I decided at that point that I was going to believe in God, but I was going to investigate, and I wasn't going to continue to believe if, um, if it wasn't true, if there was no evidence. Uh, I didn't want to live a, uh, a lie. I didn't want to live on the basis of something that wasn't the case. But I was thrilled as I started looking at the evidence for Christianity. 
I remember reading F.F. F. Bruce's book, Are the New Testament Documents Reliable?, and just being astounded that we do know what the original documents contained. Uh, we know where they were written. We know when they were written. Uh, and we have uh, great confidence in the text. I was also amazed to find out that these documents uh, show f- evidence of being firsthand witnesses, that uh, they reflect the culture and the history uh, and the geography accurately. They are reliable documents in a historical sense. Um, and then I remember uh, particularly looking at fulfilled prophecy, and, and one uh, prophecy that in particular I remember is reading in uh, the book of Deuteronomy about what would happen to the nation of Israel if they rejected their covenant with God, and um, reading that they would be taken down uh, to the coastline and put on ships and and taken to Egypt and sold as slaves, and that there would be no buyers uh, for them. And and then reading that when Roman General Titus destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, he took the survivors down to the coast, put them on ships, took them down to Egypt, sold them on the slave market, and there was a period of time that there were so many Jews on the slave market that Jews were cheaper than horses. There were no buyers. I was very much influenced uh, by a book called Who Moved the Stone, uh, written by a London Times uh, reporter, Frank Morrison. And Morrison, uh, being an agnostic, was kind of upset by all of this hullabaloo around Easter and uh, thought that he would do a feature story on uh, what really happened at Easter. And to his surprise, he ended up writing the book called Who Moved the Stone, in which he concluded that the best explanation for what happened on Easter was that Jesus was actually resurrected from the dead. Uh, And that book is still in print. I actually gave it to an engineer in Denmark just this last uh, November after we had a discussion on the topic. Uh, Now, uh, when I I actually go through the the evidence that uh, Bruce was reviewing this morning on the evidence for the resurrection, you do a calculation, and, and you know, I remember what uh, Sherlock Holmes said to Watson in one of the Sherlock Holmes stories. You know, after you've eliminated all of the plausible explanations, you have to be intellectually rigorous enough to examine the impossible explanations. And, and that's what you're doing when you conclude that the only really plausible explanation for Christianity and how Christianity arose in the first century uh, is that Jesus rose from the dead. That's kind of a calculation you do, and it, there's a little bit, there's a lack of emotional satisfaction in that. And uh, it was in December of 1970 that I gave my life to Christ. And I, I committed myself to be a follower of Christ and to obey Him in everything. Uh, and I can say now, 42 years later, I'm completely satisfied with my decision, and all of His promises are true. Thank you, Jeff, for telling your story, and um, it's encouraging to hear. Uh, He's a very intelligent, incisive guy, and uh, he found the evidence to be overwhelming. We're talking about the ramifications of the resurrection. 
And one ramification we said is that Jesus is right in his claims, and his claims to be resurrected, his claims to be the way to come into a relationship with the living God. But there's a second ramification, and that is that his resurrection requires a response from us. It's not just that we can hear this information and then shrug our shoulders and do nothing with it. Jesus said this in John chapter 11, verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, again, it means to trust in, to rest in, to count on, believes in me, who I am and what I came to accomplish, which was to take the penalty for your sin and for my sin and then to rise again triumphant. The one who does that, that last phrase is so special, shall live even if he dies. Think of that young man, Chris, who's facing death. That's what he needs to come to a full knowledge of, that he can live even if he dies, because we all will. And I think of G.B. Hardy, the Canadian scientist, who said, let's just boil life down to those two questions. Did anybody conquer death? And did he make a way for me to do it too? And the answer to both of those questions is yes and yes. Yes, that he conquered death, and yes, you can conquer death too if you're one who believes in Jesus, who he is and what he's done. In John 6.35, it says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. See, that's the problem with just shrugging our shoulders and ignoring the evidence that already puts us under judgment. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the unique Son of God. It talks about in the name of it. It means everything that he is and everything that he did. We need to believe in that. And if we just choose not to respond that way, we're under judgment already the Bible says. In fact, Jesus said this also to those who hadn't really committed to trust in him. He said in John chapter 8, unless you believe that I am he, the one who was forecast to come and to pay the penalty for sin, the one who rose again from the dead, unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And that's something we don't wish on anybody. You see, the chief priests and the scribes, they had all the data that they needed. They had all the information. They had all the evidence. It was right before them. But they were unwilling to let the truth penetrate their hearts. And again, I don't know everybody's background, but maybe you're here today and you've been an observer of all of these things of the resurrection but it's never had a personal impact in your life. Now it's great for other people. But when it comes to the truth, you've been unwilling to let it penetrate your heart. Don Anderson tells an interesting story 
He says, something amazing happened to the number one agnostic in our church. 70-year-old, supremely confident man finally came to grips with the truth about Jesus Christ. His name was Les. And he says, Les had been a delightful skeptic, polite, intellectual. For years, we'd hashed and rehashed Scripture. We'd good-naturedly argued His wife diligently prayed, but still Les wouldn't be convinced. He'd come to church once in a while with friends, but he'd never let any of the messages get to him personally. It was nice that his wife found such comfort in her religion, but he didn't need it. He could afford to stay aloof. And he goes on to say of of Les, you couldn't help but like him. He was a wonderful man, a good man, a pleasant man but he was also a condemned man in the eyes of God. Then finally, one day it all came together, and Les describes the experience in his own words. I was a hypocrite. I acted like a Christian, but I was not. I've likened my thoughts to that of a camera that would not focus. Therefore, all my views were fuzzy and unclear. I looked for God in all the wrong places, such as Judaism and even Islamic cults. While listening to a sermon one day, it all suddenly became clear. And I prayed silently for Christ to come into my heart, and he did. And right then, my lens was in focus. My life has changed, so much so that I can hardly believe that I could have ever doubted. The Lord has changed me. My wife and my associates see the difference in me and testify to it. I love my Lord, and I know He loves me and has forgiven me. So could it be like less your spiritual lens today is fuzzy and unclear? Have you been looking for answers in all the wrong places, maybe even considering some some Eastern religions? Meditation, Scientology, other things. Maybe even thinking about checking into spiritual mediums and folks like that. If so, it's time to focus the lens today. It's time to key in on the only answer who's the person of Jesus Christ. The point, men and women, is that his death and his resurrection demands a response. And the question is, what choice are you making? Are you going to be like less and just sort of hear it, but do nothing about it? Or are you going to be like less who finally allows everything to come into clarity and he turns to believe and to trust in the person of Jesus Christ? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me counts on who I am, what I did for you, shall live even if he dies. That last phrase is just so incredibly beautiful. Do you want to live even if you die? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much 
for the historical evidence, the biblical truth that we have that points to the person of Christ. We thank you that it is only reasonable to conclude that he was resurrected from the dead. It is only reasonable to conclude that he is the one who conquered death. It is only reasonable to conclude that he has made a way for us to do it too. And that is for us, just as Les did, to make a personal decision. We don't need to get up. We don't need to spin around. We don't need to raise hands. We don't need to say things. We can just, right where we are in the quiet of the inner part of our being, say, I am ready to embrace the person of Christ, to believe in, to trust in his death, his burial, his resurrection on our behalf. I want to believe in him. And as I believe in him and I enter through that gate, not only do I get to know the living God, but I know that I shall live even if I die. What incredible truth. And what a great opportunity we have to celebrate. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.